Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, everybody. David Kern here. Before we get to today's show, I want to let you know about some great books that you might be interested in. If you would love to read classic literature like Sense and Sensibility, Heart of Darkness, Frankenstein, and Jane Eyre with a helpful, trustworthy guide, then Karen Swallow Pryor and her new series with B&H Publishing Group might be a great option for you. In that series, she navigates through the pitfalls that trap readers today and shows you how to read those books in light of the gospel and to the glory of God. Sense and Sensibility and Heart of Darkness are available wherever books are sold right now, with the other books in the series coming in the spring and fall of 2021. You can learn more at bhpublishinggroup.com slash classics. That's bhpublishinggroup.com slash classics, or you can get copies of those books wherever books are sold. Hello, and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and as always, I am joined by my old friend, Heidi White, but not, as always, by our old friend, Tim McIntosh. Tim is on an adventure somewhere, a little Memorial Day holiday at sea or something. I'm going to go with that. I think he's just fishing, but holiday at sea sounds better. So uh, sounds great. Heidi and I are holding down the fort. So we are here to discuss uh, Graham Greene's The End of the Affair, and we have... Two more episodes left, plus the Q&A. So this week, we're going to discuss book four, plus the first three chapters of book five. Book four is very short. So it, we combined it with book parts of book five, which is very long compared to the rest of the books in the book. Uh, so the first three chapters of book five, and then book four, which is just a couple of pages, really. So we're going to discuss that uh, in just a second. I wanted to remind you about everything else that's going on. Don't forget that you can join the conversation over on Facebook. Search Close Reads in the search bar and you'll find that. You can uh, click join and you know be, be a part of all the, the chatter on, on this book and others. Uh, you also have Instagram. You can find us at Close Reads Podcasts. And uh, our newsletter is closereads.substack.com. If you want to email us, it's closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. And then finally, don't forget about our Patreon page where you can get bonus episodes uh, and sweet show swag and other stuff like that. That's patreon.com slash closereads. And right now we are... Uh, what are we on? Bo- part five of Crime and Punishment? I don't even know anymore. It's just like the book that never ends. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. So we'll be discussing that soon. We had a with uh, Tim's vacay and uh, the holiday weekend. We kind of pushed that back a few days, but but the the next episode on that will be up soon for all of you Patreon supporters. So I think that about covers the business. Heidi, how was your holiday? Did you do oh, anything it was interesting? Great. The weather wasn't very good, but I mean, interesting. No, we had a barbecue. So. Yeah, the same thing we do every day or every year, Pinky. Try yeah. to take the world. Um, how exactly. about you, David? We didn't do much. I what did I do? Uh, I took the kids. What did you make? Did you cook I, something? I didn't cook anything. I t- took the kids to get donuts. Went to the Krispy Kreme drive-through. Brilliant. And then, uh, oh, we know we did go to my parents, my in-laws rather. Sorry for a little bit. We played out in the backyard and ate on the deck. So you know. Kept it kind of simple. All American. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so the end of the affair, which is not all American at all. Uh, although, wasn't Graham Green? I mean, I like, don't know if that ant- was one of your very best transitions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. Graham Green was kind of anti-American, wasn't he? Like he didn't like America. He, in fact, I think when he lived in North America, he mainly lived in Canada. Yeah, that's yeah. He which. In some ways, it's very American to not like America if you're an American. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, just like be rebellious, right? Independent-minded. Uh, so, we're, this is book in book four, and then into book five, um, we get the the response to Sarah's journals, and then we get well, really, we get the resolution to their story together, and then we move on to his story after Sarah has spoiler alert died dun, dun, um, dun. and so that's the big thing the big dramatic thing that happens in this section is sarah dies um so i, I feel like we should just start there um right. we can talk about some other passages and, and his response to her letter and all that but let's start with the dramatic occurrence 
in this section. And really, the thing that sort of changes the book quite a bit. When you first read this, were you shocked that she died? Do you, do you recall your response to that uh, that plot twist? Yeah, I do. I I only read this book for the first time two years ago. Uh, and after, actually, after we read, did The Power and the Glory on the podcast is when I read The End of the Affair for the first time. So I wasn't surprised when I, because the cough thing, I, I, I don't know if he was heavy handed with it or not, but I, yeah. I guessed that she was going to die. So, yeah. and honestly, it's the only, I, as you're reading it, it feels so inevitable but she, yeah. the, the way to, it's just this path of reluctant salvation. And it seems that for her to, for Maurice, for Morris to have to go through what she went through is the only way for him to be saved. And the only mm. way we know that that will happen is if she's gone. Because he mm. will not accept no. He will not hear no. So. Yeah. Literally. I mean, yeah, that's the. <clears throat> that's the thing. It's interesting that she recognizes that too. That's what I was struck by this time. I mean, not that she recognizes that he won't say no. Like she's known that about him for a long time. He's a very persistent chap. Um, <laughs> you, and, and we even get that with the way his, he lives his life, right? The structure of his writing and the commitment he has to it. Like he's very committed to the things that he wants to accomplish and the things that he wants out of life. And he doesn't say no, you know, that in, so it's the classic there's comes with the good and the bad right but right. she so she recognizes that part but she also recognizes that you know there's, there's the bit where it says that she she writes the letter to him right that he gets after the fact he almost throws it in the fire and then he opens it and in that letter she says that she's praying that she won't live and it's as if she's recognized that that's what he needs that she you know she had the moment where she thought he was dead and she saw him lying there and like that's the moment that her began this change in her. And it's like she recognized... It's interesting that she seems to recognize the same is true about him. Because there's nothing she can do to, quote, save him by, you know, being with him or she can't go the route of being with him and then, you know, living with him or marrying him and trying to save him after the fact and and all that. She recognizes that the only way for him to be saved is for her to, you know, be lying under a door in essence. And I find find that, that recognition in her to be very fascinating. Yeah, I agree. I thought there's just so much pathos in this entire section. Yeah. Um, and it's such a tightly constructed story. Every uh, every week, as looking forward to the next week's reading, I think, man, this next section is like the key to the whole book. But I think it every single week. Right? <laughs> so, well, I mean, I guess that's the way a good novel is, right? Exactly. Everything is purposeful and everything <laughs> is meaningful. And brilliantly written in this novel and but that part of the letter when she says she went to the priest and presented her case to the priest you know what you know I we didn't have a real wedding Henry and I didn't have a real wedding we were married in a registry so we weren't really married and we we haven't had a true marriage for several years and so isn't it true that I can just say we weren't you know basically annul the marriage and um and be with Morris I just found that so compelling because she she displays such strength of character to continue to say no to this man that she loves, even though we know that she's weakening physically and uh, and that she goes through these dips spiritually. Um, but she maintains her resolve. And I just thought it was so compelling that she has that little like pleading moment with the priest. Yeah. Yeah. So humanizing to her. Yes, yeah, it's like a last a last resort yeah. type of thing. Well, and she's trying to play the game, right? Like she's she's like, I'm going to become a Catholic. Oh, these are Catholic rules, right? Like so yeah. that, I, yeah, I just, there's something about that that was so humanizing. But then she doesn't go throwing away. Right. You know, it's not just a game. Like she right. tries to follow the rules, but then when the rule, when the priest tells her, no, that's not how this works. That's, that would not be right. She doesn't say, well, Okay, forget all this. Right. She, she has she herself is resolved. You know, she, well, there's that amazing line in the letter actually, uh, where where she says something like, um, "Are you going to say I've caught belief like a disease?" 
well, there was that we should talk about that, but, um, but there was just the, the idea that like, she, she couldn't not believe like someone could show her all yes. the stuff that, that are reasons to not believe. And she'd still believe she says you could, right. you could chop the Trinity up into a dozen pieces or whatever. And I'd still believe, right. um, which is, I think, I guess the prelude to her saying I've caught, you know, belief like a disease, right. but she can't, and she can't, she recognizes that she can't escape that. And so, she, but she's also committed to what that means. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, one of the fascinating things about this story is the way her character evolves in that sense that um, it's so, there's so much um, resistance to it. Mm-hmm. But then once she finally does believe, she's like, well, there's nothing to do but be invested in this. Right. What does she say? It's so good about about that. Let me read in, that. In the letter? Yeah, that section. What's the good, Morris? I believe there's a God. I believe the whole bag of tricks. There's nothing I don't believe. They could subdivide the Trinity into a dozen parts, and I'd believe. They could dig up records that proved Christ had been invented by Pilate to get himself promoted, and I'd believe just the same. I've caught belief like a disease. I've fallen into belief like I fell in love. I've never loved before as I love you. And I've never be- believed in anything before as I believe now. I'm sure. I've never been sure before about anything. When you came in at the door with the blood on your face, I became sure once and for all, even though I didn't know it at the time. I fought belief for longer than I fought love, but I haven't any fight left. And then the next couple of sentences I'm going to read too, because they hearkened back. You know, it's funny how literature talks to each other, talks in in our minds, right? Because this has uh, all the connections we make. Yes, such uh, connections to Holden. Morris, dear, don't be angry. Be sorry for me, but don't be angry. I'm a phony and a fake, but this isn't phony and fake. I used to think I was sure about myself and what was right and wrong. And you taught me not to be sure. And then she goes on. But that, of course, the phony quote. And that that's the thing we all wanted for Holden when we were reading Catcher in the Rye is to realize, yes, everything's a, everybody is a phony, but this isn't phony or fake. And that's what we hoped for for him. And he never got there. But in this story, some of these lost people actually do. There's something really comforting about a great a great american novel that lets people be saved every once in a while <laughs> <laughs> yeah. great or great great, great british, british novel, novel. yes yeah. modern novel is probably more <laughs> what i meant yeah 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 um do do you think that i can imagine reading this novel it's hard for me to separate having read it a couple times now but i can right. imagine reading this novel and reading her death as if it's like uh i don't know and then accusing it of being shock for shock's sake. Um, mm. do, you, do you think he, do you think there's anything to that? Like I've, I've even heard people say that like this novel, um, that it's uh, Catholicness and it's uh, supernatural themes don't hold up so well anymore, which of course is, that's kind of like a stereotypical thing that one would say in 20, 2018 or whenever the particular essay was written that I was reading. Right. But do you think though that that there is anything to this idea that you know that it's it's um just that there's other ways he could have gone about that or that's just shock for shock's sake or did she have to die in the you know and and um sh- could should he have built it up more i mean all, all, there's all these mm-hmm. questions about how he drops that on us and i'm curious what you right. think about that yeah i want to talk about that i was hoping that we would talk about that i I think the way that he does it in the novel is like incredible, the death um, and the ongoing conversation between the sacramental vision of the world and the disenchanted vision of the world that Morris is trying to hold on to, mm-hmm. even in her death. And, and I think all that's brilliant the understated way her death is thrown in there, the way he responds to it, all of it. Uh, But that being said, I do think that there are some moments that this novel does derail with kind of the neat little bows that are tied to everything. Um, That that the, the the precision actually is kind of a flaw. Well, I I think so, but 
are distracting. I'm very willing to be convinced that I'm wrong um, because it could just be my modern sensibilities as I read. Can you be, can you be more yeah, specific? Like I, I can. I can be even more specific next week. Um, <laughs> but the, to your, the conversation we had last week about how she kisses um, Smythe on his you know, marred face, things like that kind of continue to happen so that there's just this um, miraculous kind of on the nose. Yes. I think, I I do think that that happens. And I think he does it on purpose because he is trying to challenge the modern sensibilities. And he is trying to say, these aren't just, our lives are not fragments short against our ruin as Elliot said in the wasteland, but there's, there's, a, a, um, there's a narrative to it that's going to be resolved in the kingdom of God. And what if it was resolved here? What would that look like? And so I, yeah. I think it's a valid question. Um, but I do think as readers, sometimes there's a little bit, you know, sometimes I'm blinking a little bit like, really? <laughs> so well, I don't know. What do you think about that? This, yeah. Um, the smart stuff, I think is, is, it's a harder, it's harder for me. Um, mm-hmm. one of the things I like about green is like, so y- you look at the way he can be, he's can be so precise with some of his themes and the way he can bring things back around. Like the, you know, the constant, he, um, talks about the idea of pain over and over again in this section, which of course has been an ongoing theme. Like she talks about the pain that she had. And then, um, so in, um, when he, when they're sitting in the church, you, you know how she falls asleep on his shoulder. Mm-hmm. He says, the slowly growing pain in my upper arm where her weight lay was the greatest pleasure I had ever known. Um, so there's there's a reference to pain there. Um, uh, let's see. Um, it, it's astonishing the effect of hope. That's a good line. Mm-hmm. Um, there, was another, there was a couple other examples of where he is reflecting on stuff and he uses the word, he talks about the idea of pain. And of course, that's something that we get throughout the whole novel. And she talks about the way that it's the pain that it's like a healing pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and she recognizes the need for it. And then she, you know, she says, you know, for his sake, give me pain or whatever, you know. And so he's so good at, you know, taking those themes and re- weaving them into the novel in a way that seem casual. But see, you know, mm-hmm. they're really rich. Like the idea that he says that he's got a pain in his shoulder because she falls asleep there. And, you know, it's like his arm's falling asleep or whatever. Um, so that's, it, that kind of stuff flows right within the narrative so well while enhancing the themes that, that are presented earlier in the book. So he's great at that. But then there can be these times where when he does that with someone like Smythe, it can feel a little bit on the nose. And those seem like two different kinds of storytelling. On the one hand, there's the weaving the themes into the narrative, like he's doing with the word pain, where he's mm-hmm. just making every little bit be something meaningful, you know, harken back to something. And then there's times when like you're, making the action into metaphor okay. and making the making of the action into metaphor. Like when she kisses smile on his, you know, scarred, marred face right. was the word you used. Um, that the action there becomes a little bit on the nose. And so that's mm-hmm. the parts where I have a harder time wondering if he could have been, why well, I don't have a hard, I, I wonder he could have been more subtle and it would have been less distracting or more effective. But on the other hand, I don't know. Maybe that's the point. You know, who am I to? Right, right. That, that's exactly that's exactly how I feel about it. Sometimes I find myself, I and I again here, here I am with my please help me understand men thing. I think <laughs> that this like newly formed friendship when Henry's calling Morris to come like arrange for the funeral and they're like together. I like that. Just like beggars belief to me. Like I just cannot. Yeah, get we need Tim that. here. It was I guess I'm going to ask you the same question: Is that necessary for the narrative? Is it one of those like you have to have? Well, we'll get to the end, represent. right? Yes, together, and so you just kind of have to like suspend your disbelief because well, it needs to happen for the sake it, of the narrative. Or is this an the, actual reasonable kind of reconciliation? It's hard because sometimes the point of a novel is to make things happen that seem unlikely to happen. Right. Like I'm fine with that idea, assuming it's consistent, at least within the world of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I think that the diff, I think that this is challenging because in most cases, you know, the cuckold man or whatever would, right. uh, would not be terribly friendly. But I think the, I think the point there is that Henry recognizes his own failures. And I think that he sees what he did not give to Sarah. Mm-hmm. And that in a sense, he kind of drove her, if you will. I mean, I don't, that's, I'm, I'm not talking about, I'm, having a discussion about blaming someone for something like right. that is, is complicated. But I think that in a way, he kind of drove her out of her own home. Mm-hmm. Um, she didn't, she didn't give her, he didn't give her what she needed. I think he recognizes that he recognizes his failures and his flaws. And I think that he looks at, um, Morris as somebody on the one hand who he would actually like to be friends with, who he, he thinks is an interesting guy, you know? Um, and I think he values yeah, that's true. Morris as an individual, but, but more importantly, I think he sees, I think he sees that that Morris loved her, Sarah. And, and he, and he, there's that line where it says that he, you know, they both are uh, value any love that she, anything that she loved or something like that. Um, And I think that Henry is probably trying to extend, you know, I think it's a combination of him extending that love, but then also being helpless Hmm. and being at a loss and not knowing where to turn. And I think that's why it's important that um, she doesn't have family. I think that's mm-hmm. really, really important within the context I because or you know, like, there's and in this section in particular, there's the line where they say she never knew her father. Um, she doesn't have a sister. They have no children, um, and 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 it talks a lot about how lonely she is. Mm-hmm. And I think for Henry, he looks and he says, "There's nobody else here. There's there who is going to mourn with me, you know, and who's going to help me with this?" And he so he is in his loneliness and his helplessness, he is reaching out to the only other person that she really, really loved. Um, and I think that he also knows at this point that she was going to stay with him. Yeah. I think she's made clear. You know, I think that's why maybe he's a little bit more sensitive to the possibility that she was becoming Catholic. Whereas Morris, who knows actually more than Henry is mm-hmm. way more resistant to the notion. Um, he fights against it actively. Right. Whereas Henry's, I think, I think he, because he because of the relationship that or the woman that he saw in the last days of her life, he probably is more accepting of it. Um, I just think Henry's a kind of a he's one of those characters that seems shallow, but I think is more complicated. Right. Um, which can happen sometimes in uh, novels with ter- with uh, ter- secondary and tertiary characters, but also novels that aren't terribly long. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of subtext that you have to get. You have to get your hands on. You have to spend right. some time with, so to speak. I don't know. It doesn't bother me, um, but I also like. By I, I also think that it is unusual. Like it doesn't totally make sense. I think it works better in a novel than it would be in a movie. Yeah, I think that's probably true, and I, I do think it makes a difference that Henry and Sarah have not had what she calls a real marriage for many years. Yeah. I can kind of, I, I've just spent a lot of time thinking about it. And you said something, I think two podcasts ago that I talked over later with my friend, Emily. And I was like, David said this thing that I never even thought of. And I don't know why I didn't think of it. I think that's why I was so intrigued by it. That it's, once you said it, it was really obvious to me. Um, but it was when we were talking about duty and desire and how Morris has her desire and Henry it has this connection of duty to her through the fact that they're married, even though they don't see it sacramentally, mm-hmm. which is emphasized in this section. And it'd be fun to talk about that. Um, but the, you said that he, that Henry, I can't remember exactly what your words were, but something along the lines of maybe that's what Henry wants is just to have a life with her. And that that matters more to him than to have her passionate love. Um, And that that maybe he's content with that. And truly, I'm not making this up. I'd never even considered that. Never. It's like, I'm such a desire-driven person. So that to me is just like this empty shell of a life. And all you get to do is go to the grocery store together and have breakfast every day and be photographed together and pull it. What, what is that? Like, so there's nothing, it means nothing, but it doesn't mean nothing. 
It doesn't. Yeah, yeah. That's a real life. And it's not a full life and it's not what marriage is supposed to be, but it it's mm-hmm. not nothing. And he essentially says that in this section um, when at the, the beginning of book five, when they have their little weird sleepover. <laughs> That's so weird. But um, then he says, um, Maura says, you hadn't so much to be jealous about. It was all over a long time ago. And Henry replies, I don't need that kind of comfort now, Bendrix. It was never over with either of you. I was the lucky man. I had her all those years. Yeah. And essentially he said what you pointed out. And I've been thinking about that. Like that's, I just have, it's a different way to read the novel that there's, it's a different way to think, I think about duty and desire and the conflict of this novel that, that Henry actually had something precious with Sarah. Well, she seems to recognize the, um, she seems to come to recognize the preciousness of their, of yeah. their marriage. Like that's why she, in the end, stays with him, right? You know, she she's agreed that she's gonna. You know, he begs her. We talked about last week. He begs her to stay. She agrees to. Um, she she rejects ultimately Morris, and um, right. and she seems to recognize that there's a sort of value, a sort of um, something inherently good about what she and Henry have, even though it's not what she thought she wanted. And, you know, it would right. leave something lacking. But I think she also, in that sense, recognizes that there'd be something lacking in a relationship with Morris too, right? Like they, her and the first half of the book is about Morris and her recognizing that as much passion as there is in their affair, there were other things lacking too. Right. And so what she's, she's kind of stuck between these two relationships where she's got either the duty or the desire, but they're not whole. And the thing that ultimately fills that is the third man, right? Right. Um, it's, this is a big green idea, though, the idea of the third man. And Go the, on. And it's the, Talk about that. Well, I mean, he has a whole book called The Third Man. It's, that's more of a spy novel. But the, but, but the third man in this case is God, right? And mm-hmm. both Henry and Morris think that it's somebody else. It's some other random dude who she's you know, right. having an affair with. Um, but it's not a random dude, you know. The third man in this situation is the one who who ha- who who offers a whole relationship. Just, but in that, she has to she has to um, empty herself, right? She has to. It has to be selfless. It's not about fulfilling her own. It's not just about meeting her own duty or fulfilling her own desires. You know, it's right. about you know. It's it's a it's not duty for duty's sake, nor is it desire for your own sake, um, and and so the the end the the um, incompleteness of both those relationships is really what is the hinge that, that her life in this book hangs on. I think, um, and then at the end of the novel, I think one of the things the reasons that Henry and Morris have been thrown together perhaps is because they both recognize the absence as well, the incompleteness of their right. own relationships. And they're both long, you know, there's a loneliness and there's an emptiness and there's an incompleteness to their lives that I think, even if they wouldn't express it that way, seems to be uh, pushing them together. Um, I think that Green was a little, I mean, my understanding is Green was not terribly happy with the way this, with the way he finished this novel. Um, he felt like he rushed it. I think he wanted it to be longer. Um, huh. We can talk about that next week. But I think that there is, and, and in particular, the, the Henry... Morris relationship. But I do think that there is something um in I think there's something in each of them that that an incompleteness that throws them together, so to speak, that makes it that makes it work, even as it's a little odd. Like I but right. so I'm in the situation where I can kind of see, yeah, it's weird, but I also get what the book I also feel like I I can empathize, I guess, with what the book is trying to trying to do right. with these two guys. Right. Well, and they need to be, I I think, structurally, to add to what you're saying and to agree with you, I think they have to be kind of united at her death. That's one of the reconciling forces of her death, is that these two halves of her life are brought to, essentially forced together. There's like a forced mending to it. And that that has to be mirrored somehow in the relationship. So it makes sense just psychologically. I do remember the first time 
reading the novel and being like, this absolutely beggars belief that he would go sleep over, like invite him to come sleep over at his house. Like that, the man who's sleeping with his wife, like that. So, but putting aside that kind of psychological, you know, question mark, which maybe I'm even wrong about that. Um, I, I do think the novel kind of demands some kind of reconciliation over through the death of Sarah. Yeah. The beggars be like, yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. Like just because that's the, the question for me is not so much that it seems totally believable. I don't know. Anything is believable when someone's, when someone dies, I feel like, but are, does that inherently become a flaw of something beggars belief in a book or yeah. beggars beyond belief, you know? Well, and that's why I said, I think I remember, I think the three of us were texting before and I did comment. There's just some things at the end of this novel that I can't get my head around. And this is the biggest one for me. Um, that, but, they, that So the, the, you're, so Henry's welcoming Morris into the home is what is the, the question for you that he would reach out for him like to him to comfort him with in sarah's death and, and he makes a comment i i can't remember where it is but in this section about how they both loved her mm-hmm. and i think to the priest right and that that I mean, henry's always been passive but that's an active pursuit like that's an action that he's taking it's not like morris just came in and henry just sat on the couch and let him be there that to me would be a little bit more psychologically consistent um but well but throughout the whole novel though henry's been coming to morris and like he gradually figures out what's going on and it doesn't like shock him right so i i just i just have a hard time thinking that a man would want to be friends with someone sleeping with his wife even after she's dead that's well, and so you, you can see you can see Green trying to explain it a little bit, like at the beginning yeah. of book five, where he says it's strange. Henry says it's strange, Bendrix, how one can't be jealous about the dead. She's mm-hmm. only been dead a few hours, and yet I wanted you with me. And then he says you hadn't so much to be jealous about. It was all over a long time ago. And he says I don't need that kind of comfort now, Bendrix. It was never over with either of you. I was the lucky man. I had her all these years. Do you hate me? I don't know, Henry. I thought I did, but I don't now. He sat with his in this his study with the light on with no light on. Um, so you can see Grain trying to say, you know, it's not, he says, I don't need that kind of comfort. And he's like, I don't mm-hmm. need the kind of comfort that says that you, that it was all over between the two of you and she was going to stay with me. I think what he's saying there is I know that she was going to, she has, she already committed, recommitted to me. Right. Like she had already. Yeah. Well, um, she promises him that she won't leave him. Right. So he doesn't need that kind of comfort anymore. You know, right. he's, a, he's essentially said, I, I failed you. I accept your apology for the for the for the your infidelity because in my mm-hmm. own way I was unfaithful to you. And so they had Henry and her had reconciled despite their differences despite their inability to have real desire, you know, they they had kind of reconciled. So I think and so he's saying I know you don't need to explain to me. You don't need to comfort me that it was all over. I know that part. Right. What I need the comfort is that this woman who who I love and who is who who I just beg not to leave me. You know, he recognizes how much he needs her. And when she's gone, that's that emptiness. He thought he had won her back in a sense. And then she was gone in a different way. So to me, one of the the great complicated things about this novel is the way Mm -hmm. you get this reconciliation between them. But then what happens is she prays that she would die in a sense. So for Morris's sake. Right. And so the, the question of, isn't that just another sort of infidelity to Henry? And so the, the comp, the sort of spiritual and, you know, all, that, that's the, those are the sorts of questions that I have about this novel that I want to talk about probably at the end. Cause right. in the end, if she, if she says she recommits to him, but is she, you know, in paying in praying to die in praying for Morris's mm-hmm. salvation, is she ultimately rejecting Henry again? And right. what does that say about her whole, her whole, uh, story, her whole spiritual um, conversion and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That, I think that's more, that's in a way more troublesome, troubling uh-huh. to me and what the novel is trying to say. Right. Um, and it might be more than what Graham Greene was trying to say, but leaves me a little, inc- right. leaves, it feels a little incomplete to me. He says that, that sometimes novelists say more than they mean. It's just that there's also just this underlying thread of the craft of writing that goes through this novel. And every time I, 
I encounter those, I always think about you because I know you're paying attention to those. Um, but when he's having that conversation with Waterbury and he, and, and it's just annoying, um, there's just all these attempts in this section to, um, that Morris makes and that the different characters make to, um, like grapple with meaning in death and in writing. And, um, so he's, he's talking about, Waterbury asked him some question, makes like a throwaway comment about novelists saying more than they mean. Um, and I, I thought about that a lot because this is, as you pointed out, such a, Maybe I pointed it out. I'm so wise. Such a tightly constructed novel. Everything's meaningful. We've Everything's all been pointing purposeful. it out. Yes, we all <laughs> um, So every word is there for a reason. My favorite sentence in the whole reading is right after you stopped reading on my book, it's on page 110. Um, he says, we sat in the study with no light on. The gas fire was not turned high enough to see each other's faces so that I could tell so that I could only tell when Henry wept by the tone of his voice, this sentence, the discus thrower aimed at both of us from the darkness. Yeah. We I, I yeah, had marked it that. to talk about why. <laughs> um, it, because the discus thrower is God, right? Like, but it's an actual statue in to your point about, um, how actions become metaphor. In this mm-hmm. case, there's just this simple sentence that gives you, uh, orients you in the setting of this room, tells you something about Henry that he's got a, the discus thrower statue in his room. And then it becomes this like metaphor for God. He's aiming at them in the darkness, and, which is yeah. why I think to your point, they have to be together. One of the so things that isn't, yeah. yeah. And one of the things that's to me that is really striking about this is that it's, it's not just that the discus thrower is in the room, but it's that he sees the discus thrower. Like the, the narrator, like there's not some omniscient narrator who's telling us the discus thrower was pointing at them. That's a very different thing than he notices the discus thrower. It's as if he has been, he is being called, you know, he's being steered to see it. There's something about the way his eyes are being opened or something like that. Right. Uh, or at least it suggests that. Uh, so I think, yeah, so the, being part of the action like that is, that, that's where I think it's a really... You know, it's like the use of the, the pain, the use of right. pain over and over yeah. again. That's it's great. And it's so subtle and there's so much there. The discus and arrested motion is just aiming at them both and like he's coming for them. It's brilliant. It's just a brilliant sentence. Everything about it was amazing. And there's lots of those moments in this book. Um, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why they have to be together, which I keep coming back to. Um my own like internal dissonance about this, <laughs> that they have to both be aimed at by the discus thrower. They have to be there t- together. Why do you think the image of the discus thrower is what Green chooses to represent, uh, to represent, you know, God here? He could have had a archer or a statue of or archer. The thinker, or thinker, right? That's another really typical yeah, pseudo yeah. Um, intellectual kind of statue to have in your man's basement or whatever. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, the, the discus thrower is a Greek sculpture from the classical period. It's the one where they're, the, you know, the throwing the, the body is turned and the head is going one way and the uh, characters, the statue is going to throw the, the disc in the other way. Um, most people have seen it. If you look on Wikipedia, it's pretty. You can look up Discobulus to find the uh, the page on Wikipedia if you want to see what it looks like. But why do you think that particular statue is the one? I think because it's it holds action and stasis in this tension, right? Because mm. if he's if the discus thrower is aiming, something's about to happen, but it's not yet happening. It's not yet there. Hmm. Um, yeah. And, and it's violent. Like if, if you get hit by a discus, you die. So it's not like a Frisbee. Did you know the original, let's see, or at least the first, one of the very old, old versions of the discus thrower was purchased by the, by Adolf Hitler for 5 million lire in 1938 
from the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Italy. That sounds like a plot of a Matt And then Damon it was movie. it was displayed in his um in a museum and then after the war it was returned in 1948 and now it's in the National Museum of Robe. That's oh. anyway, that's uh that's quite the um factoid. <laughs> that is. What did you make of that? That stood out to you too. No, I mean I think yeah, I don't I didn't I don't have a real conclusion on like what the specific um the image is meant to represent, but I I like your take the, the idea of stasis and action and held in in one image. That's that's really compelling to me actually. Um there's a sort of it's on the it's a it's a um well one it has to be a male mm-hmm. character. So you got again you've got a third man here, right? In the room. Um I think there's something now that I say that, I think there's actually something kind of interesting about that, that there's, there is Henry, there is Morris, and then there is in the figure of, there's God in the figure of this third man, um, almost like, almost like a wake in mourning. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the three men that she, in various ways, loved, if, right. if you will. Um, duty, desire, and then, you know, however you want, you know, the, the, a more whole right. combination of the two, but also, um, the, the discus, the discus thrower is, um, as you said, it's the, the, there's like a, there's a moment of choice in a discus, right? It's right before he's going to throw it right before he has to decide when to let go and when to release the discs so that it's going to fly where, and the, the trajectory of the discus throw has not been determined yet. Mm-hmm. Um, where it's going to land, how far it's going to go, you know, all those sorts of things are, that's there, as you said, it's the stasis before that, before that action takes place. So I'm, that's really compelling to me. I like that. Um, let's talk about the discussion about what kind of funeral to give her. If you're up, if you're up for that, because yes. um, the priest yeah. is there and, and uh, Henry set is kind of like, Oh, let's do whatever she wants, whatever she wanted. And the priest is probably <laughs> right. going to be able to convince her. But then Morris is so actively uh, against it. He, he really fights against it. And for people who want to check this section out again, it's I got to keep turning the pages, I guess. It's always oh, still part one of book five. This is, and it's before Smythe comes to visit them, right? Oh, no, no, no. Smythe is there. Let's talk. Let's actually. Okay. So let's talk about Smythe's response. Smythe tries to convince Henry. I think that's really interesting because we, we get the sides of the discussion. The priest kind of says she was going to, she was going to convert, you know, you should let her do this. Henry says, whatever. Basically, Morris says, no, no, no. Henry finally gives in. But then Smythe comes and there's a really interesting conversation between them. Um, and, Let's see here. You see the section where it says Smythe is there and it says he's asleep. The doctor gave him pills. It's been a bad shock to all of us. I added foolishly. He was staring around the room in Cedar Road coming out of nowhere. She had been as dimensionless, I suppose, as a dream. But this room gave her thickness. It was Sarah too. The snow mounted slowly on the sill like mold from a spade. The room was being buried like Sarah. He said, I'll come back and turn drearily away so that his livid cheek was turned on me. I thought that was where her lips rested. She could always be snared by pity. He repeated stupidly. I came to see Mr. Miles and say how sorry. It's more usual on these occasions to write. I thought I might have be, be of some use, he said weakly. You don't have to convert, Mr. Miles. Convert? He asked, ill at ease and bewildered, to the fact that there's nothing left of her. The end annihilation he broke suddenly out i wanted to see her that's all mr miles doesn't even know you exist it's not very considerate of you Smythe, to come here when is the funeral tomorrow at golders green she wouldn't have wanted that he said and took me by surprise she didn't believe in anything any more than you claim you do he said don't any of you know she was becoming a catholic nonsense she wrote to me she'd made up her mind nothing i could have said would have done any good she was beginning instruction isn't that the word they use so she still had secrets, I thought. She had never put that in her journal any more than she had put her sickness. How much more was there to discover? The thought was like despair. Let's stop there for a second. So there's two questions I have here. Uh, one about the idea, I want to talk about the idea of pity. She was always, she was always, she could always be snared by pity. 
and uh, the idea that she hadn't put that in her journal. And I want to know, you know, I want to know why Green makes that. Like, why does she not put it in her journal? What does that say about her journal, and what does that say about her conversion? And then also, like the 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 idea of pity. And maybe we can come back to the pity thing later. But this journal thing seems really important to me in terms of the structure of the book, because if she had put it in the journal, he would know so much more. Do you think that it's true on the one hand that it's not in the journal, or was he was he blind to it? And then on the other hand, if it wasn't, why does she not put it in there? What do you what do you think about that? I don't know. I've never thought about this before. You're right, though. It's really um, highlighted. It's emphasized. Maybe she did and he missed it because he specifically says he skips sections that would be painful for him. That's true. Yeah. She certainly seems to be working towards a conversion of sorts in the journal. So in a way, it seems like he'd have to be blind to what she was saying, you know, blind to subtext, which would be unfortunate for an author to be blind to subtext. (laughs) Right. She's not, there's, she, she doesn't seem to be a secretive kind of person to me. Like she seems pretty straightforward. She has to lie to have an affair. So she, she knows how to lie. Um, But, but she's also kind of out in the open. Yeah. She doesn't seem like a withholding kind of person to me. So it doesn't, I've never thought about why it isn't in the journal. I don't know why I haven't. Do you have a theory about it? No, I mean, not it's in really. the letters. She tells the people, she tells Smythe and Morris hasn't read the letter yet at this point. And she tells him in the letter. She never tells Henry anything. Right. And that's, you know, that the question of the degree of what it means that she was going to go back to him. And yet, she has, you know, and yet her love for Hen- for Morris and, uh, you know, to some degree, mm-hmm. even like the pity for Smythe in a sense persists. I find that really complex. Um, I agree. And that all totally rings true to me. The, the, everything about Sarah rings true to me and I find extremely compelling. She isn't <laughs> a capital S saint. Or maybe she is. Maybe that's the whole point of the book. But, and that we will talk about that next week, I'm sure. Mm. Um, but she is still in love with Morris. She lets him touch her in ways that she shouldn't, even when she's telling him no in the church. And so she's not without temptation still. I mean, she's dead now, but even at the end, your point is exactly right. Like she's not, she still wants to do wrong. Like her desire is not yet purified. It's not yet, she she is acting wholly, but her heart is still uh, attached to, to Morris and she still wants the affair. She just gives it up. Yeah. I mean, I there is something like, journal. what's that? I said, I just... I want you to say, I said, I don't know why she doesn't write it in her journal, but proceed. With yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily saying. have an answer. I just find it, you know, that'd be an interesting one for the uh, readers to yeah. hypothesize about. Um, because in a lot of ways is as like, I wondered, does she, does she think maybe Morris is going to read the journal one day and that's why she writes the things that she does or does she, is she trying to work out things that she's unsure about, but, but eventually she's just kind of like sure about, her conversion, like at that point, she's just gotten to the point where she realizes, right? I don't need to, like, th- there's no like process of unburdening herself, as which is in some ways what writing things down can be. Um, I don't know. I, I just, it's interesting that it was, it is emphasized there. So why, why does Morris fight so hard for the cremation and against? the Catholic burial. Yeah. You know, and there's a, okay. So on the opposite page, there's Smythe and her are still talking. He says, um, Smythe says, I've got no right to ask, but I wish you, you, you loved her. I know he added as though he were swallowing a bitter medicine. She loved you. What are you trying to say? I wish you'd do something for her, for her. Let her have our Catholic funeral. She would have liked it. What earthly difference does it make? I don't suppose any for her. 
but it always pays for us to be generous. And what have I to do with it? She always said that her husband had a great respect for you and he was turning the screw of absurdity too far, which of course <laughs> is, I mean, that's Green Green just saying exactly what you're saying. Like there is, yeah. yes, I recognize there's some absurdity to this notion, right? Um, Green is nothing if not um, uh, self-aware at times in yes. his writing. But, Precise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The um, So he is actively like, it would not have hurt him to say, fine, let her have her funeral. Right. And, you know, let her, let her have the funeral she wanted. You claim she wanted this. It's fine. He did, you know, he's putting up a fight because it's about him. That's got to be, I mean, that's ultimately what it is, you know. Right. Because, um, and you even, and, and, and um, Smythe even appeals to the sense of charity, right? Do something charitable for her. It always pays to be generous. And then his response is, what do I have to do with that? Like his, or what do I have to do with it? His at that point, he's run out of responses, right? Because Smythe is just saying, just do a generous thing, just be generous, just be a little selfless. And he changes the subject. Morris does. What do I have to do with it? Her husband does it. Um, has to do with it. And then he, and then Smythe says, well, her husband has great respect for you, you know. Um, and so Morris just keeps twisting it and twisting it, and then mm-hmm. you know, re- ignoring it and changing the subject. And his his resistance to it is clearly about him. Right. But what is he resisting? Why does he not want this? Like, is it, yeah, what, what, what is so important to him about, about this? I, th- I think, well, I mean, we, we know that he's, he, I mean, it's, in, in, it's keeping, in, it's keeping, in keeping, sorry, it's in keeping with what his response has been to her growing faith the whole time even in the moment when she thought he was dead he rejected the notion of miracles he rejects prayer he he doesn't accept the value of it all those things so that's in keeping with it and he seems to be holding on to a sort of worldview that he is built for himself that he's you know he's really uh hunkered down in so to speak um but that's why i think the the notion of pain keeps coming up in this section, like in the yeah. next paragraph, um, he starts laughing, right? Um, and he says, I don't under, Smythe says, I don't understand. He held his right fist closed as though he were prepared to defend himself. There was n- much that neither of us understood. Pain was like an inexplicable explosion throwing us together. Mm-hmm. I'll be going, he said, and reached for the doorknob with his left hand. Um, and then he says, you must forgive me. I'm rattled and we're all rattled. And they have a bit of a reconciliation in a sense, like a peacemaking moment in a way. Um, even as their conversation continues. Um, but he seems to be being pursued in a way. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the notion of pain as a sort of spiritual uh, purifier mm-hmm. is something that Sarah recognizes. She recognizes it early on. She, and he, that, that same pain seems to be pursuing him. Uh, even when they were sitting in the church and she put her head on his shoulder, I think that that is the, the, the idea that pain comes on, comes on him in that moment is really crucial. And that it seems to be pursuing him. And, I, and it feels like he is trying to be closing himself off to that. And he's trying to reject that. And he's doing his, the best that he can to not uh, succumb to it, um, to be... You know, a, to be stiff upper lip against this, the uh, this the pain that's right. that's pursuing his soul. Suffering. Right. Yes. On page one twelve in my book, um, so a few pages back, um, he says, "I mustn't be like Richard Smythe. I mustn't hate. For if I were really to hate, I would believe. And if I were to believe, what a triumph for you and her." This is to play act, talking about revenge and jealousy. It's just something to fill the brain with so that I can forget the absoluteness of her death. There is a lot in those couple of sentences. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about how this that, that section there becomes a lot like Sarah's own writing in her journals. Yes. So the book, in a sense, in the latter half of the book, becomes his own journals. It's the, mm-hmm. it's so her journals were the record of her conversion in a sense, and then the book here, starting with this section that you're talking about, seems to 
just even the way he talks right. to God in the second person and all this sort of thing. Like it's like he's having a conversation with God and every now and then he'll do that throughout the book. It, it begins to mirror the way she was writing her own inner life about her own inner life. Totally agree, David. And this is where I came back to the first paragraph of the book. Cause I, I felt like the first time I read the, the novel, I couldn't, see exactly how, you know, how the first paragraph, um, like defined the rest of the novel. Cause you know, that's how great novels are. And, um, he, cause he begins, you know, a story has no beginning or end arbitrarily. One chooses that moment of experience from which to look back or from which to look ahead. And, and we talked about that in the first podcast. And as I saw this, <laughs> new kind of, maybe that's some of what he's getting, getting at here is that what Green is getting at, that a conversion story just keeps playing out in the same way, like circles out from, you know, the stone that's dropped Hmm. into the water. And one, there's no, there's no end point. Yeah. Like, and, and each conversion is my own included. I'm sure yours is it feels completely unique to me it's this purifying experience in my life and um and it it feels like its own really special narrative but if you and I were to sit down and say okay so how did you really what is your conversion so in many ways it would be parallel but it would feel completely Mm -hmm. fresh to you and to me and um whether it's dramatic or whether it's quiet, um, there it's still there's still kind of this narrative to it that's similar for each person, um, and that we see happening in the book. I think. Do Do you think the book is suggesting that that salvation is a sort of you know rather than I mean we can get into some murky theological waters here I suppose, sure. but do you think this is a book that seems to be to be buying into the notion of salvation or sanctification uh, as more like the idea of a process to like the concept of theosis type of thing, mm-hmm. as opposed to like a moment, it seems to be suggesting that, that it, that salvation is, it's the working out in fear and trembling concept right. more than it is the moment when you believe. And, Cause mm-hmm. like she finally says she gets to the point where all of a sudden, well, where she seems to be saying, okay, I believe now, but it wasn't like she had this one, she didn't have like a, she didn't pray the Jesus prayer. I mean the, right. um, you know, not the Jesus prayer, but the famous, you know. Right. Yeah. She didn't yes. have like the moment where she prayed a prayer and that was the, the moment where she was saved. Um, which of course is a more, Green is a Catholic, mm-hmm. Catholic writer. And so he would have had a more process oriented notion of sanctification or theosis, more like the Catholic church, or the Eastern church or something. Right. Is that what it's seen? I mean, I don't, I don't want to get, I don't want to say the book is a theological treatise, but is that right. is that kind of what you're getting at? Um, I think so. I, th- you know, we always say in the church that we're continually being saved, um, and I I, I do see that here. Um, I th- I also think one thing we haven't talked about that's really emphasized in this section is the sacraments, and to your point about murky theological waters, they're. Uh, you know, there's different <laughs> different interpretations of that particular part of the faith. But Green, as as a Catholic, he is saying that the sacraments matter to this to salvation. And next week we'll get into that even more. Um, right. I've kind of been feeling like we need to get to the end, but we can. I dive know. In, in the next, we have five minutes. Let's say that you have five minutes to talk about the the. <laughs> deep theological concepts. Right. Okay. So I, on page 113 in my book, um, so it's the conversation that they have about registration and cremation. Uh, so that's in the book five, section one. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's just like a couple pages into book five. Um, and there's just this very kind of, um, denuded um, conversation about Sarah's body. Uh, 
like that uh, that the doctors are too busy for her the nurse went out on another case they she he didn't even know what undertaker to call like she's laying in the spare room like there's just this this very disenchanted kind of um conversation and tone about her body and it goes along then with the fact that she was married to green he connects that with the fact that she was married in a registration office and that she wants to be and that that they're planning on cremating her that and he seems very very determined to to talk about her as just a a shell like having no soul and and green because there's so much subtext to that um that's really important um he says in the middle registration and cremation i said they go together and that is a commentary on modernity for sure as that there's all of this love all these people that loved this woman and yet they can't (laughs) none of them want to think she has a soul that or that there's any kind of sacramental action that will hallow her death that is, and and they're like determined on that front, and that is really sad and scary way to look yeah. at death. Yeah, and and there's that moment where right after, if you kept going there, um, they go together, and in the shadow, Henry lifted mm. his head and peered towards me as though he suspected my irony. Um, there's like a there's a degree to which. Morris can never totally say anything he means, you know? Yeah. Um, like he's, he's always sort of just skirting around the truth. Um, he's sort of, he's being, uh, he's kind of like always being a little facetious or on the edge of facetious or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, right across from that, he says, Henry, she didn't believe in anything any more than you or I. And then it says, I wanted her burned up. I wanted to be able to say, mm-hmm. resurrect that body if you can. My jealousy had not finished like Henry's with her death. It was as if she were still alive in the company of a lover she had preferred to love, preferred to me. How I wish I could send Parkas after her to interrupt their eternity. I mean, that the answer to the question you asked earlier, but that's so like that's so intense and so dark and yet so it's, it's there's so much like Augustinian desire in that like yes it's it's his you know his desire for her his all the things that we've seen about his desire earlier floats through that section right there and it has this the spiritual longing underneath what he's saying there it's so dark right i wanted her burned up and he's like being selfish about that and yet at the same time it's he's saying you know it's the third man right he's jealous of the third man he's jealous of god and he wants to he wants to you know to be able to hurt him he wants to be able to you know uh push push against him and i think that 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 what he clings to is what you're talking about there with this sort of anti-sacramental view of the world, right? Like he has to cling to that anti-sacramentalism, like a view of the world that just puts registration and cremation together where those are, you know, you know, he, if he doesn't cling to that worldview, then he, he, he'll begin to, he fears, I think that he'll begin to slip right. into the view that she ultimately slipped into. If and I it's like really he is hate, trying to I plant his feet in his unbelief there. Yeah. 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 And he knows he's, he knows he's starting to hate God, which means he's starting to believe in God, which makes him want to take Sarah away from God. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And he doesn't hate Henry anymore though. Right. He recognizes that Henry's in the same position. That's why he doesn't hate Henry. He hates God now because God has replaced Henry. Right. Yes. Uh, for, for both him and for Sarah. Yeah. The true lover of her soul. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like, he can't, he can't handle that. He's breaking under, under that. And he's grieving. Mm-hmm. Like he, he's, he talks about the memories and he has some really, um, just like the common man kind of grieving moments in this too. I was thinking yeah. about with her death, it means that he's going to start to forget her. Um, talks about, they talk about the thing, the mementos that different people keep yeah. and all that. Yes. Uh, so that it is, but there's always, as you're pointing out, just this underlying 
wrestling. He is just as jealous now that she is dead as he ever was when she was alive. Mm. Um, and that's, I mean, that's, it's, it would be very uncomfortable to be Morris. He's, he's an unhappy man. Mm. Well, with his unhappiness, let's wrap this episode up. I know, right? We'll go on to the resolution next week. There's so much more too. Man, this book is just, this is a really great book. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, I hope everyone's been in, uh, finding it valuable to read. Don't forget that the next book is actually going to be Frankenstein. So we're going to um, have some special guests coming on for some of those episodes. Um, and we'll be announcing the reading schedule on that here soon. Don't forget, you can start, you know, start keeping track of your questions for us because the uh, next week is the final episode of our discussion on the book. And then we'll go into uh, your questions on it. So be sure to start, uh, you know, writing those down or getting ready to send those over. If you want to email them to us now, you can. Um, and then after next week's episode, we'll get the, uh, the, the, what the channel or the thread up on uh thread, I guess is the, the word on Facebook. Um, so again, don't forget it. You can join the conversation over on Facebook, close reads podcast discussion group, Instagram, close reads pods, the newsletter is close reads.substack.com and then patreon.com slash close reads. Uh, we have, uh, the, the, uh, the, the close read, the special close reads t-shirts that we made came in. So those of you who ordered those, those will be shipped out this week. So you should be getting those soon. Close read, the uh, Close Reads t-shirts and the tote bags that we ordered. So be on the lookout for those. Um, I think that's it for any announcements. How did you have any announcements? I don't think I have any announcements. <laughs> <laughs> Tim should be back next episode. You never know though. He's at sea. So the other thing we've learned sea. about being at sea is one never knows. But Sometimes one people port. get lost. Right down in Davy Jones's locker. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He's, uh, he says he's fishing, but you know, knowing Tim, that's probably like not really exactly the fold, the whole truth. It's probably, <laughs> it's probably him just, you know, un, being understate, understatement, using some understatement there. So, right. All right. Well, any final thoughts? No, I have, t- I have too many final thoughts. I couldn't possibly condense them. I just, like every, just this book, man, it's just so good. I love it. I love talking about it because it's complex and bottomless. Indeed. All right. Well, with that, for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh in absentia. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is David Kern. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, happy reading. Happy reading.